everybody. Welcome back to the Core Consults RX podcast. And Cole and I are just by our lonesome selves tonight. It's like the good old days. Yeah. Back in the beginning. Just AJ, he's having car trouble, so he's not here. Blown uh, tire or something blown like that. Blown tire or something like that, allegedly. Who, allegedly. Knows, who knows what he's really doing? Allegedly. And then uh, no guests today, so just two of us. It's just us. You so, know, um, are, is your work uh, adjusting operations tomorrow at all? They've sent a hundred emails. I don't know that I've opened too many of them as far as like, because it's just been like updates and I'm like, I could check the weather app if I needed that. Mm-hmm. But they haven't really said that they're closing yet and I have to work all the way out and cross tomorrow. Oh, really? I'm pretty sure is where a lot of the freezing is supposed to happen. Which is about, what, 45, 40 minutes from us? It's like an hour. An for, hour? Yeah, to the actual clinic out there. It's literally in the middle of nowhere. My cell so, phone doesn't work. I think it's hilarious. For those of you who don't know, there's just a little bit of a cold spell going on in the southeast right now. It's like 62 right now. <laughs> it's, it's, it literally is 62 outside right now. But tomorrow, it's supposed to be... 42. 42, right? And it's But it's going to get below 32 plus rain. So, of course, everybody's absolutely freaking out. The schools are closing. Daycares are closing. Uh, works, our places are going to alternate hours just because there might be some ice on the road cracks me up and i'm from here from the south i will say the last time it snowed here it was like three or four years ago yes. remember that mm-hmm. i was driving home from the pharmacy because they waited until the very last possible second to close of course and then they were like all the roads were closed i'm like oh cool can't get home yeah. i have to get a helicopter now <laughs> and uh we were, i was driving and like all these people were like you know what ice can't be that you know slippery let's yeah. just go full speed <laughs> how slippery can it be and i watched just like 17 cars just rocket off the road into the, into the woods and i was like well <laughs> i went on obviously as they as they would have wanted it is true for those if you've never done it before which i have limited experience it can't it's a difficult thing yeah can be but if you live in south carolina florida anywhere like that where we don't get snow, you will act as if it's a blizzard yeah. when it's melting as it hits the ground then we our co-worker from wisconsin was like we would have like i don't know what even what she called it winter vortex or something where it was like negative 20 or whatever and they still had to like go to class yeah of course yeah it's just it's every day up there like that it's, it's literally positive 27 and they're closing everything yeah 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 it's it's like you could wear shorts outside right now and they're yes. like you know we better close <laughs> just, just to be on the safe side yeah just be safe uh, anyways, so, uh, we'll see. Maybe we'll record another podcast from in, or <laughs> in the blizzard tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. But, uh, so today we're going to cover kind of a, a, we've had a lot of longer episodes, so this one probably won't be as long. Um, but, uh, we're going to cover, uh, some kind of an overview, I guess, of hep C. Um, we haven't talked about this since, uh, Dr. Eric Meisner was on the show. Um, and, uh, you know, he's, He's really helped me out personally, like because we've got a, a Epclusa or a Hepsi treatment. Um, we use Epclusa and Maverick uh, mainly, obviously, um, at our at our clinic, and we've gotten this Hepsi program kind of like from where we had never treated anyone with Hepsi to now we've treated over 100 patients. And um, he's a, a big uh, he was a big supporter from the very beginning of that, and he's taught me a ton. So not just from the podcast, but um, you know, kind of the, uh, the some case conferences that they have virtually that I'll talk about um, in case any of you guys want more information on that. Um, it's free education that is very, very useful and it's taught me a ton. But we're going to kind of go back through this just to kind of touch on some of the uh, maybe um, – you know nuances and some of the some of the you know somewhat new updates that we've kind of uh, we haven't really talked about. Yeah, that was a great episode. I feel I can't remember the whole thing, but I feel like we hit some specific things, but maybe didn't do like a full overview if I remember correctly. So anyway, we'll, we'll hit yeah. we'll hit pretty much everything. I think we were more asking him a lot of questions too, stuff. like yeah. his career because he's like 
he he runs a clinic and the lab. Yeah. And, yeah MD PhD is. So this will be more of a classic. Yeah. Core consult episode related yeah. to Hep C. Just super basic. <laughs> the the briefest <laughs> the of non expert. Yeah. <laughs> version. It's the non expert version. That's a good way of putting it. Um, so uh, we'll kind of start off with some real basic things. So one of the changes that's happened over the last couple of years is the actual screening recommendations because before the, the U S preventive services task force, you know, we're kind of more so targeting like the, the boomer population and the, the generation to be screened for hep C. Um, they were more, you know, at least according to the data back then, were more likely to have been exposed to it. And, um, whether it was, you know, from a blood transfusion or, um, you know, IV drug use, whatever it may have been. Um, but it was something that they were all kind of screened and that's where, you know, a lot of times, you know, they kind of catch the, or find out the person was was infected with hep C kind of um, randomly from routine screening and the patient had no idea. And so uh, what they've done over the last couple of years, they've expanded that now. So where basically everyone um, 18 and over, uh, an adult is going to be screened um, it's at least once in their lifetime. And then if you have, you know, risky behavior, if you will, whether it's IV drug use or what have you, um, then, you know, you may need to screen more than that. It's kind of, you know, patient specific at that point. But um, that's one big thing that, you know, we have to keep in mind is this should be a very routine, you know, process when you have a new patient. We want to at least do an initial screening to make sure that uh, we are, you know, catching these these cases because hep C takes a very long time to actually start having kind of like, you know, issues and in, in, in sort of like causing damage to the, the liver even. Uh, and, you know, you, it's not like you get hep C and then three days later you have cirrhosis. It takes a very long time. Some patients have it for 20 plus years and have no clue. So it's something that uh, if we can catch it early, we can treat it now. It used to be much harder to treat. Now mm-hmm. it's super simple. Um, and, uh, yeah, we can keep them from having any kind of long-term damage and get rid of it. It's definitely something that uh, has the possibility of being um, – potentially even eradicated over the next 20, 30 years. Yeah. So, yeah. We'll the drugs. And as far as the screening goes, I guess they're generally using the antibody testing. And then if they need to, they can confirm with the RNA test for the most part. So that's i I'm glad you brought that up because that is something that is an, an important thing to distinguish because a lot of places will check a hep C antibody, get a positive result. And then if you don't do anything with hep C, like you don't treat hep C patients, they'll refer out at that point. Um, to go see a specialist about 25 to 35 percent maybe even more depending on the resource that you're looking at of patients that have hep c will clear hep c on their own Um, and so they're they don't even need treatment their body clears the virus and it's gone that being said if you have ever been infected with hep c whether you've been treated whether you've you cleared it naturally whatever the case is you will always have a positive antibody so what we have is uh, at, at our clinic, we have a, a lab specifically that reflexes to, we have two different ones. We have one that reflexes to a um, qualitative um, where it just tells us positive or negative, And that's actually looking for a true like viral detection. Um, so the antibody test positive, that reflexes. And then that's, if that's second confirmation is positive, that's when you know that they actually have active virus in their system. Um, you can also get a, uh, a quantitative, um, which is where you basically get a, a viral load. Um, realistically, that's not all that important with treating hep C for the most part. Uh, we typically still do get that. And, and it, once we view the follow-up labs and all that, at least our clinic, um, you know, we have uh, an RNA um, viral load that will basically reflex to a genotype as well. And so that we kind of use that lab to kind of get that information. Um, 
again, not, not so much that we even need to know the genotype because a lot of the, the two main treatment options that we use are, are pan-genotypic. They cover all the different types of uh, the different genotypes. However, when it comes to insurance, they still kind of want to know for whatever reason. Um, it's not really that important anymore. Some some of the older medications are genotype-specific, but um, yeah, Epclusa and Maverick are, are pan-genotypic. So, so it doesn't really matter. It really doesn't matter. So as far as the going back to the um, clearing it on their own thing, so the recommendation is – if they uh, appear to be positive, do you wait and see for a period of time, like six months, or do you just go ahead and treat them? If 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 they are, um, you know, they come in, you do screening, and you basically get a positive antibody that reflexes the confirmation that they're positive. At that point, I mean, a lot of times we'll go ahead and treat them. Now, now if there's a, it's if there's something else going on or something else that needs to take, you know precedence over treating their hep C, that's fine because hep C takes such a long time to cause any issues. It's not necessarily urgent. Yeah. Um, but a lot of times that we will go ahead and treat unless there's, um, you know, some specific reason why we, why we would hold off. Um, but that way, you know, we're, we're just clearing it. And it's, like I said, it's eight to 12 weeks depending on the treatment option. And then it's gone anyway. So yeah, I wanted to hit y'all with some stats before we get too far into some I things. Knew it. I knew we had stats you, ready. We got to have some you with this because it's, um, uh, pretty prevalent worldwide, right? So about 170 million people, this according to the World Health Organization, um, have a hep C infection, 71 million of which have a chronic hep C infection. As far as the United States goes, um, the overall prevalence of antibodies, let's say. So Mike mentioned kind of why we would distinguish whether that means they have their acutely infected or whether they've been infected in the past. But about 1.8% of the population would test positive for hep C antibodies. So about 74% of those people, so three quarters, um, are positive for the hep C RNA. Uh, so that's a lot of people as far as just the general population goes. But it, it accounts for a great number of hepatitis infections in general. Um, 20% of all cases of acute hepatitis are hep C, and more than 40% of all referrals um, to active liver clinics are hep C. Yeah, you know, we obviously have A, B, C, D, E, F, like G. Yeah, there's there's several of them now. Yeah. I just got a, some paper in the thing talking about hepatitis D. So I haven't heard anything <laughs> about that. Let's just treat the first three first. <laughs> But uh, yeah, so that's that is the good news is with Hep C, it's very treatable now, and so even though we do see a pretty high prevalence of it, uh, it's something that we can definitely take care of and keep from uh, you know keep that patient from spreading it to other other patients. Um, so you know when it comes to um, you know the kind of the initial workup, like I said, we're getting an antibody that reflexes to the, the either quant or qualitative to confirm, and at that point um, you want to bring the patient back in for follow up labs. Um, and there's several that are going to be kind of important um, to, to get. Now, before you even go that route, um, there is what is now called the, the simplified treatment algorithm, um, which is basically, you know, if a patient uh, who has hepatitis C of any genotype, but they do not have cirrhosis and they've never been you know, previously treated for hep C in the past with any kind of medication, um, then you can use the... Uh, sort of abbreviated, um, simplified HCV um, treatment algorithm, which is something that uh, makes it a little bit easier to, uh, you don't need as many labs because it's one of those things that we know, um, 
basically the patient has a very low likelihood of having um, any kind of like long-term damage from the, the, um, from the virus itself. And, you know, we don't have to do as much routine monitoring. You know, we used to be every single patient would get start treatment four weeks later, we're getting a viral load. And then we're, you know, 12 weeks after the treatment, then we're getting another viral load to confirm it's actually been eradicated. Um, so the simplified algorithm makes things a little bit easier um, and, you know, makes it so that we don't have to, uh, get as much um, lab work and, and as much monitoring, but we do still need to obviously monitor for adherence, um, which we'll talk about. But, you know, who is not eligible for the simplified treatment? Um, patients who have had like, prior hepatitis C treatment, like I said, or cirrhosis. Also patients who have a um, positive for HIV or hepatitis B, and specifically they're talking about the surface antigen, which means that they have, you know, an active hep mm-hmm. B infection, um, you know, in an acute situation. We'll talk more about the HEP-B labs in a sec, but um, if they have active HEP-B, that definitely throws a a wrench into things. And then um, if they're currently pregnant, we would let them have the the baby first and then um, treat their HEP-C because as of now, we don't really have any good data in pregnancy. Um, If they have known or suspected hepatocellular carcinoma, um, that also is an important factor because, you know, if the patient has HCC, that's that greatly reduces the, the cure rate um, with with these agents, even the new pan, pangenotypic agents. Um, and if they've obviously had a liver transplant, that would put them in the not eligible for simplified treatment. Um, but, um, you know, we can kind of go through that process. And there, you know, before when we would think about like finding out if the patient actually was cirrhotic or at least finding out what stage of fibrosis um, the, the, the patient was at, you know, they, we would think like liver biopsy. Um, that is, and I think we even talked about this with Dr. Meisner, but it's, that's something that is, you know, not necessarily in the vast majority of patients nowadays. Right. Um, we have lots of different ways that we can kind of assess and, and see how likely the patient is to have, um, you know, any kind of fibrosis or cirrhosis. So we have certain um, sort of non-invasive uh, ser- serologic tests. Um, the one we use personally at, at my clinic is, is FibroShore. Um, and what it does is it basically gives you a fibrosis score. Um, so once you hit, uh, it's it's zero all the way up to 0.99. And once you hit 0.74 uh, and higher, that's usually indicates, at least according to the test, cirrhosis. Um, you probably need to verify, you know, that is, you know, and get a little bit more, dig a little deeper if you have a patient that high. Um, but, um, that's according to their, their testing. And then it just kind of stages it, uh, F0, you know, F1, F2, you know, from there and, and, you know, kind of going back. So if you have a patient whose fibrosure comes back and their fibrosis scores like 0.2, easy, easy street, you know, very, very low likely chance of them having, um, you know, cirrhosis or even advanced fibrosis. Um, the other thing that you can do is there's um, certain calculators and, and scores that you can look at. So we have like the FIB4 score. Um, we also have like the APRE score. Um, and there's there's an app that I actually heard about at a, um, at a conference, a HEPC conference, that I don't even know what the heck I was doing at that. I think I was just trying to be productive. Um, but it's called uh, HEPCALC. Um, and it's, I think it's like, Three ninety nine or two ninety nine to buy, you know, one time fee. But it has all of the different, um, not just hepatitis uh, scoring systems, but also things for like um, alcoholic liver disease or um, 
uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, things like that. So um, it can be pretty useful if you are interested in hepatology at all. Um, but the uh, the FIB4, for example, um, looks at age, the ALT, AST, platelet count, um, and then it will give you a, a score. And then if it's you know above 3.25, then it's you know more likely that they had, they are cirrhotic. Um, you know, a pre is another one that can give you some information. Um, and then you also have to look at some of the other like clinical evidence. So, you know, is there, uh, any imaging that was done? There's an ultrasound of the abdomen that can give you, it's not super specific as far as, um, you know, staging the actual liver, but you can at least look for one HCC. Um, you can also see if it's been enlarged or anything, um, or if there's any nodules. Uh, also the platelet count is huge. If you see a platelet of less than 150, um, and you are also seeing high fibrosure, or, um, you know, fibrosis score, your FIB4, you calculate it's coming back. It's like all those things are adding up to most likely being cirrhotic. Um, in which, you know, if at that point, uh, the treatment's not too different as long as they're not decompensated. The the what the reason why it's important to kind of establish whether they have cirrhosis or not is because once a patient has met the criteria or has been diagnosed with cirrhosis, they really need to get an ultrasound every six months for the rest of their life to screen for HCC. Um, and so, if you're going to kind of, you know. Put a patient in that position where they have to get that that ultrasound done and imaging done every six months. You want to kind of make sure that you do that before you label them as right. cirrhotic. So, what does that mean for the treatment if they're cirrhotic? So, if, as long as they're compensated cirrhosis. So, basically, if their child P score is a is an A, then you can go ahead and treat them basically the same um, with our pangenotypic regimens. Now, if it's a B or a C, their child P score, then they're decompensated. Usually, one they they should be followed by, you know, either a transplant team or at least, you know, gastroenterology. Um, and then at that point, the, uh, the duration of the treatment is usually doubled. Um, mm. you know, so like instead of 12 weeks that close, it's 24, um, things that, so that that's where it can get a little tricky. And that's where a lot of times we won't be treating it in a primary care setting or FQHC or whatever. Right. Um, but, uh, Compensated cirrhosis isn't that big a deal. You just want to make sure that if you put in a diagnosis that they are following up with ultrasounds and getting screened properly because that could come back to bite you. Right. Um, you know, and then if, you know, you're still unsure if, uh, if, if you need to, you know, get more information or, you know, before you have to go the liver biopsy uh, uh, route, which should probably, again, nowadays is probably not going to happen. Um, we also have transient elastography, um, which you can do. So like fibro scan is one of the examples of that. So it's, it's like um, basically testing the, the stiffness, if you will, um, of the liver. And that can be a lot more definitive uh, staging of fibrosis. Um, so that, that can be kind of like a, another resort if you, if, the platelets and the fiber shore and the fib four and all that stuff is like telling a different story, which I have seen that a couple of times. It's better just to send them off to get imaging and, and find out for sure if like they have cirrhosis, so you kind of know which, which route to go. So, um, and, and I've even, uh, to, to quote Dr. Meisner, he, he's even said that, uh, there's been a few times where he's gotten burned with, uh, F3, which is like not even advanced fibrosis on paper, but it turns out not only were they more advanced than he thought, but they also had HCC and it threw off his, his treatment regimen and all that stuff, obviously. So it's, it's something that, uh, definitely can happen and you need to take that pretty seriously. Um, we, we had a patient that, uh, we were about to start on treatment and, but his fibro, his fibrosis, fibrosis score came back and, uh, it, it was definitely, I mean, it looks like cirrhotic. His platelets were 
you know, terrible. Um, and so I kind of pushed to get an ultrasound and sure enough, he had HTC. It's like, mm. if we had started treatment, that could have been, you know, disastrous. Plus he was also having to start hemodialysis at that time. It was just a whole, it oh, would wow. have been a disaster if we had gone that route without checking. So check, check the uh, ultrasound if you need to, or get a uh, transient elastography if possible. That's if you're real fancy. <laughs> It's a good, good word. Elastography. Yeah. I like it's a it. Solid. It's our, that's our it's uh, word. SAT word for the day. Yeah. So um, other labs, once you, again, once you get confirmation, you've assessed whether or not the patient is, uh, you know, most likely has cirrhosis or not, or, you know, any advanced fibrosis. That's with the FibroShore. Um, there's some others as well, but FibroShore is the one um, we personally use. And then the other things you want to get, obviously, is uh, CMP to be able to see electrolytes and kidney function and um, yeah, the liver function test as well. Um, you also want to get a CBC because that's going to have your platelets on there, which isn't going to be really important. Um, and then you want to assess for any signs of hepatitis A or B infection. So, when it comes to hepatitis A, uh, we get we have a lab called um, the hepatitis A profile, which basically gives us the um, total hepatitis A antibody, and then also the I- IgM, which is like the acute antibody that happens. They have IgM and IgG. Um, if you have a total uh, antibody that's positive, but your IgM is negative. That means that the person has either been vaccinated or they've had hep A in the past, and you know they have active immunity towards it but they don't actively have the infection. Um, so that's what you would want. You don't want the IgM to come back and uh, positive because then you have to kind of let them clear that before, you know, it can throw a wrench into things. Hep B uh, is a little bit more complicated. The, the main one that you want to get is the surface antigen. So there's surface antibody and there's surface antigen. Those are two very different things. Yep. So surface antigen, if that's positive, that's showing that they most likely have acute infection. Surface antibody means they have immunity. So if they've been vaccinated towards hip, with Hep B, right. um, then you have uh, your surface antibody will be positive, um, and then the other ones will not. They also have the core antibody, which sometimes will be positive. As, as long as the surface antigen is not positive, though, you can get by with a positive core antibody. That just means they've had. The, you know, it's the, the body's seen the virus at some point, um, but they don't have active infection. So different than if they had a vaccine, the core antibodies. Yeah, um, and that would be the sur- surface antibodies, which you get with the vaccine. Yeah. And if the surface antigen is positive, you do not want to just go ahead and start treatment uh, with hep- for hep C. Right. You, you want to get a, yeah, you want to get a hep B viral load, and sometimes you have to do like the tenofovir um, to kind of suppress the hep B virus for the, during the Epclusa or Maverick, and then also for you know twelve weeks after that as well to make sure that you don't have a hep B flare. Mm-hmm. So it's a slightly different algorithm, but you want to check viral load and all that. So we won't get into all that today, but um, you have to make sure that you've checked um, for hep B uh, at least surface antigen um, because that's the one, especially with insurance companies they are going to absolutely want to see mm-hmm. hiv is also the other one you have to test yep. for because if you have a patient who's hiv hep c co-infected still very treatable and manageable you just it, it's more complicated so make sure you get hiv um as well uh you also it's not necessary in a lot of instances but a lot of times you'll get an inr um, or a pt inr um, just to make sure that uh, you know, the INR is where it's supposed to be, usually one, unless they're on anticoagulation. Um, but uh, you know, those are those are the the main um, tests that we would kind of want to have on board that would you know kind of give us an idea of where we need to go. And uh, again, with the insurance companies, they're real big on wanting to see a lot of the labs and things. At least in South Carolina, they are. Um, I don't know if other states are easier, but Medicaid right. wants to see everything. Right. 
Um, so yeah, so that's kind of like the initial workup of, you know, the patient. And then from there, just got to figure right. out where you're treating them. Yeah. And so we have some older drugs. We have some newer drugs. So the older stuff is mainly the interferons, um, which aren't used as often anymore, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the There's three classes of um, the newer drugs. Uh, there's NS3-4A protease inhibitors, NS5A inhibitors, and MS5B polymerase inhibitors. Um, I'll hit you with some brand names. We'll talk about um, uh the drugs as we go. Mike's already mentioned a couple, uh, but there's Harvoni, which uh, is probably one of the more recognizable um, semi-older ones. Um, Zapatier, uh, Viacari Pack, Technavi, Maverick, um, Vasevi, and Epclusa. And those are kind of all the recognizable brand names that you'll see. Yeah, and, and Vasevi is typically saved for someone who's had uh, you know treatment failure um, with one of the other agents. The Epclusa and Maverick, and then maybe Harvoni nowadays are probably the only ones you're going to see you know in most cases. The uh, interferons and all that stuff like that is just so much more difficult to treat patients with. The the adverse effects are you know way more intense. Um, you know, in in some cases, if they have like decompensated cirrhosis and treatment failure, there's maybe some reason or some options to use ribavirus along with the regimen. However, um, you know, usually the for a standard patient uh, without a bunch of complications or anything, the Epclus or the Maverick or Harvoni are going to be um, very you know, good options that you don't have to worry too much about, uh, you know, resistance and, you know, those type of things. Right. Um, so when it comes to the, the Epclusa and Maverick, those are, like I said, those are the two main ones you'll, you'll see. Um, the Maverick is eight weeks, um, and it's three tablets. So if you look, if you ever see like a box of Maverick for the four weeks, it's a pretty large box and the patient takes three tablets, um, every day. Uh, and in that case, you know, it's eight weeks in which some people would say, Oh, I'm going to do eight weeks to 12. That's great. I have a lot of patients that are like, Oh, if I take three pills, I'll just take one pill for four extra weeks. I'd much rather do that. And they just don't like swallowing pills. Mm-hmm. So in that case, it doesn't really matter. They're both going to have about Still the once same a day. cure rate, same once a day. Um, and so it's really at that point, it's just patient one patient insurance, you know, what are they going to pay for, which most of them will cover both of these. But then two, what does the patient want? If it's Epclusa, um, then uh, it's 12 weeks, but it's only one tablet a day. Um, the Maverick's a little bit more, um, you know, annoying because you have to do three tablets, but it's shorter duration. So that's, that's good news. Um, then when it comes to um, the um, Harvoni, uh, that one is, is still out there. There, When it comes to genotype a, 1A, um, one thing we didn't really mention is the different genotypes. Oh, yeah. So we typically think of 1 through 6, and usually there's 1A, 1B, and then 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. Um, but uh, 1A is the very common genotype that you'll see in North America. Um, when it comes to treating 1A, um, if the patient has uh, does not have HIV, you've tested for that, and then their viral load at baseline is less than 6 million, um, international units per milliliter, then you can actually use Harvoni now for eight weeks instead of the 12 weeks like it used to be. Um, and so that gives you a little bit more room um, and, and easier adherence with, with Harvoni. Um, but the problem is, is that's not pan uh, genotypic. So it's only going to cover yep. um, 
you know, a couple of the genotypes. So it's not like uh, that at that point, you really need to make sure that it's genotype 1A if you're going to do the shorter duration because um, that's the one that's approved for. And just to give you some stats on those. So Mike mentioned that genotype 1A is the most common. So 50 to 60% of patients in the U.S. have genotype 1A. 1B occurs in 15 to 20% of patients in the U.S., but it's most prevalent in Europe, Turkey, and Japan. 1C is less than 1% of patients in the U.S., um, and then some other kind of higher numbers would be 2A, 2B, and 2C is about 10 to 15% uh, in the U.S., and then it kind of goes down from there. So, um, you know, as far as the, you know, actual treatments go, the, you know, side effect-wise and stuff, they're, they're, they're all very... Um, you know, mild, I would say. I think the only complaints I've ever gotten from patients is like a slight headache with Epclusa. And, and yeah, it's very, very um, easily treatable now. So it, it's made things tremendously uh, easier than they used to be back in the day. Um, but yeah, the, for instance, with Maverit, um, if you're interested in looking up some of the studies, the, the endurance trials, um, and then it, with Epclusa, uh, it's the astral trials, um, and then ion trials with the... Um, with Harvoni, um, they have, you know, ion two, ion three and all that. So that, like, I think, uh, astral was like up to astral 12 last time I saw something. Um, they also have like the, uh, Polaris studies as well for that, with Epclusa. But if you're interested, definitely go check, check those out. Um, they also have another, uh, regiment that, um, again, is not pangenotypic, um, but it's the, uh, Elbesvir Grazoprovider. And that's one that, uh, I can remember if I've like really ever seen any patient actually put on that one. I'm sure it's still used. Um, but the problem is that there's a lot of like, uh, resistance to that particular. So you have to do resistance testing mm-hmm. ahead of time and it's just not worth it when you can give one of the other agents. The brand name is Zapatier. Zapatier yeah. I want to say Zapatier the way that it's spelled, but I'm sure it's Zapatier. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll follow your lead. I'm going to go we'll call Z- it with whatever. Zapatier. How about that? Nah, Sounds more fancy. I think that's wrong, but, <laughs> but more fancy. It is more fancy. That's for sure. Um, and so, yeah, the, uh, you get them started on treatment and again, to, kind of focusing more on the Maverick and, uh, Epclusa, since those are pan-genotypic, we don't really have to worry about the genotype as much. Um, you know, at that point, um, after a lot of times people will still kind of do the four week, um, you know, it's viral load to make sure that it's reducing. If it's a simplified regimen, you don't have to, you know, kind of monitor that closely. Um, but the, really the main like confirmatory test that you need is the 12 weeks, um, you know, looking for sustained viral, mm-hmm. um, you know, that reduction. And so the, you're looking at the, the SVR 12 weeks post-treatment um, should be non-detectable. And then you can say you're good to go. So there's no follow-up past the 12 weeks, years down the road, nothing, just if it's undetectable. Unless the patient has like, you know, risky behavior, then you, then you reinfection. Yeah. And that does happen. And and sometimes, you know, you'll see a patient, we we actually had one patient like this at the clinic where they had one, a, um, got treated and then they showed back up a year later and all of a sudden they had hep C again. And we thought it was a reinfection. I pulled the genotype. It was three this time. Hmm. Like, uh Oh, different infection. Um, but then cleared, cleared that one on their own. So, oh, interesting. Yeah. So they like, can be they can be reinfected from an, a different exposure. This but is, yeah, heroin, they could also, heroin use. They can they have a long-term um, like resurfacing of the previous infection if they were undetectable 12 weeks or does that not really happen? So usually by the 12-week mark, you'll see the viral load start to go back up again. If they're, um, they're going to be – If it's a failure. Yeah, yeah if it's okay. treatment failure. And that's when you have to move into you know potentially the uh, – um, the triple drug, uh, yeah. um, but you know, it, 
that's I mean it's ninety above ninety percent, ninety five percent, even up to even higher than that in some Consider patient populations. Consider clinical cure yeah. rates. Yeah, it's it's very very um, low failure rates nowadays. Yeah, so which is great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so twelve weeks afterwards, and that's when you you know can confirm and you can fill your paperwork with DHEC and tell them, yep, you did a good job. <laughs> and if it's the virus is there, then you gotta figure some stuff out. Yeah, um, I did have a patient who. Um, had started up Clusa, um, and this was a different office. Uh, he was seen somewhere, you know, different state, I think. Got up Clusa, took it for a week, decided, and I quote, wasn't for me. <laughs> I said, okay, <laughs> I'm listening. So then he, and then his GI doctor who prescribed it to him, chews him out on the phone, like, why the heck did you stop it? And, you know, this was a while ago too. So this is before we had any kind of like guidance on like what to do if people mm-hmm. miss doses. Started it for three more days. Still realized it's still not for me. <laughs> Stop taking it. And then uh, then comes to our clinic, you know, fast forward a year and a half later. He's like, I think that's for me now. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, the clues is what I had last time. Let's just get that one. And I'm like, this is one of those situations where I didn't, because we don't have an infectious disease guy. And so I was like, we didn't really know 100% what to do mm-hmm. um, as far as like resistance testing. Mm-hmm. And all that. I just played it safe and got resistance testing, which took like weeks to come back. Yeah. Very annoying. Um, and then presented his case to, you know, Dr. Meisner and them during the case conference to get true, uh, you know, to, you know, a, a true decision from an expert and not just me. But um, the resistance uh, panel came back with resistance towards um, – Eplosa, basically. Hmm. So we had to switch to uh, Maverick at that point. Um, and uh, he had had some other issues. Because of all the resistance, it was unclear as far as that. So um, I knew Dr. Meisner had told us to – he found some – like one little blip of um, – I think it was a like a recommendation level C maybe. But it's uh, it was a little blip with, you know, basically this patient fit that. And we ended up having to do Maverick for 16 weeks instead of – eight hmm. but he is cured now and it's gone Good. so that was great but um i got the resistance rate and it was just it was so many like res- like all the different like alleles that have changed and it was just it was just like, I was like oh well, i'd man. imagine just getting it justified to get uh, paid for for an extra eight weeks yeah. and those situations can be difficult too right yeah same guy uh, then took it for three three months or three the three bottles of it so 12 weeks his last four weeks decides I need a new insurance plan. It doesn't tell, so I'm just running his insurance, and then I didn't even notice that the insurance had changed. I'm on the phone with them, like, you guys have paid for this for three months. Why all of a sudden we need – you approved the prior off for 16 weeks. Mm-hmm. They're like, we've never paid for this. I'm like, okay. I'm super – and then I realized it's like it went Different from, like, plan. Humana to United Healthcare. Yeah. So then I had to do, like, an expedited – it was just – I'm like, this guy. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't want I'm to like, be cured. I'm like, he wants to be cured, but he's making it very difficult <laughs> for us. So it was, it was a lot. But – um. Yeah, it's it's definitely one of those things that it's it's fairly easy now to, to treat. And um, the, if you're the, there are definitely drug drug interactions. Like for instance, with Epclusa, I always think um, the like proton pump inhibitors and like some of the antacids and things like um, H two blockers and whatnot um, can interact with with them. Um, Omiprazole twenty milligrams is the one that's if you are going to use one, um, you still have to separate it out by a few hours. But that can be one you might get away with it's better if they can just wean off the ppi ahead of time um and then with like maverick you have to worry about some of the statins like a torvastatin is a contraindication and so there's definitely some big interactions that you have to keep in mind um if you go on to the american association um, for the study of liver diseases and the is um 
or the IDSA uh, guideline, kind of like their dual guideline they have. So it's hcvguidelines.org. Um, they have a drug-drug interaction like list, and it has all the anticonvulsants. It's got everything listed out, um, you know, whether it's red, yellow, you know, you know, mild interaction green. So it's, it's something that uh, is very useful to kind of have um, available to you if, if you're not sure, which, you know, there's so many drugs on that list, it's probably a good thing to double check. Um, there's also the uh, Liverpool um, app that you can download, um, and that one is uh, it's it's called the uh, Hep Eye Chart, and that's basically the whole um, whole app is just drug drug interactions with antivirals. So that's another good one to have. It's I think that one's free, and the Hep Calc, like I said earlier, is like two ninety nine. So spend the money, <laughs> it'd be easy. Um, but yeah, so you know, like short and sweet, like I said, but uh, you know, the, some of the labs to get, some of the monitoring. The thing I definitely want to make sure we talk about though is something that's fairly new to these guidelines, and that's um, what happens if they have incomplete adherence. Um, I posted something on Instagram about this um, just because I kind of summarize. They have it in like paragraph form, and I kind of turn it in algorithm form because um, my brain needs simplicity, <laughs> and so I changed it um, a little bit. So check that out if you want to see that. Um, but they basically broke it into, okay, you have a patient who was not fully adherent to the regimen. Um, does that need to be considered a treatment failure? Do we need to extend treatment? There was never really any guidance on that. So now they've kind of um, given a lot more uh, information. This only applies to Maverick and Epclusa. So that's the other thing. So don't try to use this with anything else. It's just those two drugs. Um, and they, they break it up into two things. The first category is, um, is were there interruptions during the first 28 days of therapy? Um, or if it's after that, so that's the first like kind of breakdown. Um, if you're in the first 28 days, they look at it. The seven days is kind of the sweet spot. So if they've missed less than seven days, uh, or seven days or less within the first 28 days, it's actually a lot more. Don't tell patients this, but it's a lot more leeway than you yeah, think. More you wiggle have. room than you would think. Absolutely. And so if you've missed seven days or less, they basically just say start therapy. You know, this is assuming that you've kind of start, stopped the therapy or one guy that did, you know, that wasn't for him. You restart therapy, um, complete the original plan, you know, whether eight weeks for Maverick or 12 weeks for Epclusa. Um, if it's been eight days or more, you, you still want to start um, the therapy back uh, and then you want to get a um, HCV RNA, the quantitative, you know, viral load as soon as possible. Um, ideally the same day, you should be able to get a blood draw when they're at the clinic and um, make sure you see kind of what's going on. If it's undetectable, so the, you know, the, the RNA level comes back negative, um, you want to just complete the original um uh, treatment course to eight or 12 weeks. Um, and then, um, you do want to consider extending, um, an additional four weeks if the patient has genotype three or if they're cirrhotic, um, because the genotype three has a lot more likelihood of having some resistance and things. So, um, if it's genotype three or cirrhosis, you may want to add, you, you want to add on four additional weeks of therapy. Um, and then if the RNA comes back, 25 IUs per liter or more, um, or is not obtained, so you don't really know, you automatically add on an extra four weeks of treatment. So instead of 12 weeks, it goes to 16. Instead of eight, it goes to 12. Um, so it's, you know, you have to get some prior auths redone and all that, but at least you have some guidance on what to do and not just full, full panic mode like we used to do. Just run around the clinic. That's this craziness. Doing whatever comes to your mind. Yeah. Um, and then if it's been past 28 days, so let's say they were really adherent for that first four weeks and then they decided it wasn't for them. So then you kind of look at the second half of the chart. Um, again, they break it up by, uh, if it's seven days or less, 
same thing like it was in the last chart. You just restart therapy, continue the normal duration that you had scheduled. Eight to 20 consecutive days missed. So if you miss 20 days, there's still hope. <laughs> um, way more wiggle room than we ever thought. Right. Um, we want to restart therapy, get the viral load. Um, same kind of thing. If it's undetectable, uh, we want to kind of continue the normal schedule unless it's genotype 3 or cirrhosis. Then we add four weeks. If there is a um, positive viral load that's greater than 25 IUs per liter um, or if you haven't obtained, you want to stop treatment. And then you would want to retreat uh, basically from scratch following the recommendations for the, the retreatment strategies that the guidelines have. Um, so you have to, that's where it deviates and it's a little bit, different. which I mean, you'd expect that 20 days and your virus is still there. It's like, okay, dude, we got to start over. <laughs> what are we doing here? And then if you've missed 21 day, 21 consecutive days or more at that point, dude, one, you got to, what are you doing? Second of all, one for him. Yeah. You get, it was not for you <laughs> in that you want to, um, you know, go ahead and stop treatment, assess the SVR. And then if it's uh, not achieved, if you still have virus present, then go ahead and do the retreatment options uh, available. But you stopping this in that case, if it's 21 days or more, you're stopping the treatment. You're not just going to restart and then, then get the viral load back when you get it. This is you're stopping and going from there. You're hoping that by some miracle, the uh, first four weeks of the Epcluser or whatever it was kind of cured, which, which does happen. We've had a patient that did that. They quit after uh, four weeks and their their up close it was um that was enough yep however we do not want to we chance do not want to chance that with every patient no. be great once we have more data but as of now you only do that when we have to right <laughs> but yeah so check that out that's in the same thing the hcvguidelines.org um give that a, a look and, and also you can check out my version on instagram if you really are feeling bored but um i think that uh, is very very helpful because um yeah, it's great that they have that now. Seen some adherence issues with Epclusa for oh, yeah. sure. Um, yeah. So, um, but yeah, um, the other thing is making sure you have somebody in your team. And like this case, it's me. I call them and I'm check because a lot of the times you have to use specialty pharmacy. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of barriers to care that have to do with people saving money, and so uh, it can be annoying when you know I. One, uh, I think it was Optum, was like, oh, yeah, the person, uh, we couldn't get in touch with them. We called them like two or three times, couldn't answer. We just we just put the prescription back on hold yep. after four weeks of treatment. I'm like, oh, perfect. And yet <laughs> I have to still use your pharmacy because that's what, you know, medicates that I have. Like, yep. yep. Infuriating. But I've gotten quite uh, angry on the phone to Medicaid <laughs> more than one time about that. I have to use this pharmacy even though they can't fill a stinking prescription. <laughs> He's like, well, it's just a policy. I hate that policy. They're like, I get paid minimum wage to yeah. talk to you on the phone. Like, yeah, <laughs> you should you ask for a raise. <laughs> no. Um, no. I, not, I, I keep my cool. Mo, I'm Johnny cools it down most of the time. However, every once in a while, especially when it comes to the desk. Can't mess with patient care. so mad. Yeah. Especially when they force me to use I think you force someone to use a certain pharmacy. I thought oh, that was dude, illegal. Does it all the time. I mean, we run into that. Constantly, yeah. which is obnoxious. And they're the we, only ones that get away with that. Yeah. Could you imagine if you forced your patients to use your in-house yeah. pharmacy? It'd be illegal. Mm-hmm. Insurance companies are like, no, yeah, we're good to go. Yeah. Not cool, dudes. Nope. Not cool. Um, yeah. So I know that was kind of short and sweet. Um, I told, told you we'd keep the episode a little bit short this time. but uh, And now you can treat hep C. <laughs> or at least you have some basic understanding. I encourage you to go to the guidelines because there's a lot more. Yeah. And and again, the, the genotypes, we, we kind of touch more so on like 1A. Um, the pangenotypic treatments are, are going to be the same for your uh, 
non-cirrhotic in your compensated cirrhosis patients. But um, make sure if you're using something else like Carvoni and all that, you double check the genotypes and stuff because you want to make sure that it actually covers the genotype you're treating. So it's going to be important. Um, and then uh, we'll, we'll need to do an episode later on where we talk about decompensated cirrhosis to get into ribavirin and all that. Yeah. But uh, that's kind of a separate thing. Um, also, more more specialized. Yeah. So, all right. Anything else cool you got? That's all I got, man. Um, so I hope that was somewhat helpful. Hope we didn't confuse you guys too much with all the just randomly talking about the labs. But uh, if you have any questions, send us an email um, or you can reach us on any of the social media platforms. Um, also, if you want our more, uh, you know, lecture format, uh, organized, um, information, check out Patreon. Um, we do a lot of the PA lectures that are the PA lectures that I give my, my PA students are on there, um, with the PowerPoint slides and all that. And it's a lot more of a, a type study method versus me and Cole just chit chatting. Um, but, uh, yeah, check that out. It's like three bucks a month or it's like $30, I think for the whole year. And you get like thousands of slides and all this other stuff. And yeah, there you go. You're set. You can use that for your own projects and rip us off. Yep. It's hilarious. Um, but uh, yeah, thank you guys for listening. Thanks for the support. And we'll see you guys in the next episode. Have a great one.